We'll have the combat later, right? <laughs> wow. I was driving down the freeway one day, and a car passed me with a license plate that said, Do good. I thought, I like that. I like that. Do good. Personalized license plate, paid the state a little more so you could tell people to do good. What would I put if I had my own license plate personalized? Maybe be godly. Just the letter B and then godly. And then I thought, wait a minute. First time I make a mistake in traffic, (laughs) I just besmudged the Lord's name in my own testimony. Maybe I better hold off on that. Not that I make mistakes in traffic, mind you, but how about, how about be good? That'd be a good one. Be good. I thought, you know, what would people react to? How would they react to do good or be good? My, my reaction was pleasant. But not everybody would feel that way necessarily. Uh, you see a lot of bumper stickers and personalized plates that lead you to believe that people have other values, like he who dies with the most toys wins and things like this. And so even though my reaction to a personalized plate that would say do good or be good was pleasant, I'm sure there are others whose response would be, ah, humbug, do your own thing, or don't tell me what to do, or there's another one of those do-gooders. People have all sorts of responses and reactions to everything. It points up the fact that we all make choices. Not only in light of the slogans we like, but we also make choices to do good, to do evil, to do nothing, or to do something in between. This thing of good can be so relative. What does it really mean to be good? It can be confusing sometimes to know what to do. There are, however, some absolutes. We all know this, don't we? God's given us plenty of absolutes in the Bible. And today we want to take a look in 1 Peter. It's the good that God likes. Because he tells us about it. It has to do with being good, which is logical, logical because being proceeds out of, or doing proceeds out of being. So in what way are we to do good? In what way are we to be good? The first thing I see in this passage is that we should be good in our relationships, in spite of the alternative choices that are before us. And there always are alternative choices before us. Now, once again, the issue is, This thing of being good is so relative. How do we know when we're really choosing the right alternatives in our relationships? Peter gives us a couple of ways. We're choosing the right alternatives when we choose to exhibit certain characteristics. And he's careful to list them for us. Look at verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you, Live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Now notice the word finally, if you will, because it's a link to what is preceded. And what precedes this? Remember what we talked about last week? We talked about submissiveness. Put it in another way, we talked about living life with a cooperative spirit in marriage, in subservient roles like employer-employee relationships, And even in terms of 
giving way to the civil government. So Christians who live in this society, who fill a servant relationship or who are married, here's how to be. We're to be harmonious. That's what, it, that's what the text says. Live in harmony with one another. What that means literally is to be of the same mind. Paul tells us in Romans and Philippians and Corinthians as well that we should be of the same mind. We should think the same way to, of thinking. We're under obligation to work out our differences in our relationships so we can think more alike. That's the point. So we're to live in harmony with each other. We're also to be sympathetic. We're to share in our feelings. We're we're to be responsive to one another's feelings. Paul said, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. We should be empathic. We should identify with each other and be sympathetic toward one another. Then, of course, a dead giveaway that he's speaking to a Christian group is we're to love the brothers and the sisters. This is distinct counsel to Christians. And we're to be kind-hearted. You notice there, that in the text? We're to be affectionately sensitive. We're to, we're to be quick to feel and show affection. We're to be compassionate. <clears throat> Excuse me. Compassionate. This is the exact opposite of what we run into in the world. We find people in the world and ourselves as well, if we're not careful, becoming callous, becoming aloof or indifferent or unmoved by the plight of other people. And Peter's saying, no, 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 don't let that typify your life. Be compassionate. The idea is to stay close to what moves others and be moved ourselves by what moves them. This is the way we're to be good. And then lastly, he says, we're to be humble in spirit, recognizing the frailty, our own frailty, as a frailty we all share. And we're pretty weak, aren't we? We're pretty frail. We're not to get heady or proud. Just stay humble. If you need help, I'll help you be humble, God says. (laughs) And he has a way of humbling us. So you put these qualities all together, and you know what you end up with? You end up with a person who has a good idea of humanity, his own humanity or her own humanity. You have a person who's high on the rights and feelings of others, and who so far as as it is within themselves, wants to live cooperatively with others. This is the kind of person we all like being around. This is the kind of person we like having around. We want him on our team. People like this are the supportive, empathetic, I'm for you type individual. They give new meaning and deeper meaning to the word friend. So how are we to be? Let's just start with one thing. We're to be friends with each other. Not just acquaintances. We're to be friends. And all these things that we've just outlined typify what that friendship looks like. So you can imagine the local community, Christian community, what it's like when we're all endeavoring to to do this. I was driving uh, old Highway 12 one time years ago. Before there was a freeway in Wisconsin, there was Highway 12. And when you come to Black River Falls, Wisconsin, you'd see a bunch of billboards advertising the Real McCoy's restaurant. And they, had, they were like Burma Shave written large. Their signs were funny. They drew you in. I remember one of them especially. It said, Black River Falls, home of 5,000 happy, happy folks and a few old grouches. The church can be like that. How can we miss? 
the prospects of a local church ever being everything we've just typified by what we've read here is probably, in some people's estimation, not possible. Because we're all at different levels of maturity. We're all coming from different places. We have different uh, churning points in our lives. But if each individual responds with yieldedness to the Holy Spirit, we can see by virtue of the virtues that have been put before us this morning already, what a difference it would make. And that's the goal. That's the objective. So we know we're choosing the right alternatives when we are good like this. This, my friend, listen to me, and I'm hearing myself as well. This, my friend, is the good that God likes. Look at it again. How does he want us to be? Live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love us brothers and sisters. Be compassionate and humble. That's how we're to be. We know we're choosing the right alternative when we prefer certain behavior to other behavior. And this behavior, in fact, is the outworking of the characteristics we've just mentioned. <clears throat> Specifically, it's when we respond in a better way than we are treated. Have we ever had a need to do this? Have we ever failed to do it? Look at verse 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. We choose higher alternatives, such as in how we talk. Look at verse 10. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. It's seen in how we behave as well. Look at verse 11. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. So we're told to do evil or to do good and not evil. When there's a clear difference, we need to make a clear choice. We're told to seek peace and even to pursue it, to chase after it, to get after it, to be serious about it. Don't be casual about it. That's the whole idea. Now remember the word peace. We've talked about this before. If you want a good handle on what the word peace means, most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, if you'll substitute these two words for the word peace, you'll have an idea. Right relationships. Seek right relationships. Pursue them. Why are we talking this way? Well, because Peter's talking this way. But why is he talking this way? Because he knows humanity. He was writing to a bunch of humans. He was writing to people who were capable of phenomenal good and horrible evil. And he wanted to give them the good that God likes. Because when we're pursuing the good that God likes, we're better people for it. And those around us are better off for it as well. Now this thing of seek, remembering to seek peace or right relationships, to do everything possible to ensure it, it suggests a multitude of things, actually. Have you ever offended, offended someone? Ask forgiveness. Have you ever been offended by someone? Grant forgiveness. Talk to them. Settle it. See, there should be no distance between us. Is there a need to forgive? Do it. Unless we think Peter is standing alone in this council, listen to the Apostle Paul. Paul says, let us pursue the things which make for peace or right relationships and the building up of one another. Listen to the writer of Hebrews. 
pursue after right relationships or peace with all men and women. We know we're choosing the right alternative when we prefer to the point of pursuing certain behavior over other behavior. This is the good that God likes. What kind of people do we want to be? What do we want on our license plate? Be good. There's not enough room to put the rest of it there, but be good like God wants us to be good. That's the point. Now, I don't know where you are in your relationships, but if you have one which is estranged today, if you're having trouble with someone, could be a mate, could be a friend, could be any, almost anybody, it's time to move swiftly and quickly to rectify the situation. Maybe that means you become the confronter. Maybe it means you become the forgiver. Whatever it means, it needs to be done. Because Peter is not laying out suggestions for us. He's laying out directions for us. Peter's not suggesting what we should do. He's telling us what we ought to do, what we need to do if we're going to do the good that God likes. General Douglas MacArthur put it this way one time. A truce just says you don't shoot for a while. Peace comes when the truth is known, the issue is settled, and the parties embrace each other. See, peacemakers don't just try to stop conflict. They're doing something far, far more meaningful than that, something healing and restorative. They try to bring about reconciliation and relationship, even if it means going through the conflict. I thought about how to best illustrate this, and this week I ran across a little video clip that I think does it so well that we'll just use the clip. Many of you are familiar with the movie Fireproof. Many, many of you will remember this scene. For those of, uh, those of you who are not, how many have never seen the movie Fireproof? All right, there's a few people. It's about a married couple that weren't getting along very well. In fact, she'd filed for divorce. His father gives him a book, and he said, in the book, there are 40 things, that, forty days that he should spend trying to do the right thing in his wife's life. Maybe that's enough. Let's just pick up on the clip right now. Why are you doing this? I have learned you never leave your partner, especially in a fire. What's happened to you? Dad asked me if there was anything in me that wanted to save our marriage. And then he gave me something. Um, I, I could let you read it. Was it this? How long have you known? I found it yesterday. So what day are you on? Uh, 43. There's only 40. Who says I have to stop? You didn't want to do this at first, did you? No. But halfway through, I realized that I did not understand what love was. And once I understood that, I wanted to do it. Caleb, I want to believe that this is real. 
And I'm not ready to say that I trust you again. I understand that. But whether you ever reach that point or not, I need you to understand something. I am sorry. I have been so selfish. For the past seven years, I have trampled on you with my words and with my actions. I have loved other things when I should have loved you. In the last few weeks, God has given me a love for you that I have never had before. And I have asked him to forgive me. And I am hoping, I am praying, that somehow you would be able to forgive me too. That sort of nails it down, doesn't it? That's the good that God likes. This is what Peter is calling us to. When you think about it, besides the Lord, what do we have in life? Not much if we don't have each other. Now, we're not talking just about husbands and wives. We certainly are talking about husbands and wives, but not merely uh, talking about husbands and wives alone. All the dynamic relationships there are in this room, that's what we're talking about. This is what God has called us to. This is the good that God likes. He wants us to be good in our relationships in spite of the alternative. He also wants us to be good in personal living in spite of opposition. Now we know we're dealing properly with opposition when we do what's right in spite of it. There is a higher priority than not suffering. This is the sense of Peter's words here, verse 13 and 14. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do what is good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. I think what's going on here is he's picked up on the sentiments that are echoed in the Apostle Paul's writing. If God is for us, who can be against us? Even though we suffer, who can really be against us if God is for us? Now it could be be that Peter meant do-gooders normally don't suffer greatly, as a rule, that people generally appreciate their presence. Nevertheless, even if that isn't so, and suffering does happen, notice what it says we are. We're blessed. We're blessed for living righteously. Does that sound familiar to you? It should. Listen to these words. 
Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The priority is to live righteously. Not a suggestion, it's a calling. We'll take a lot of dirt in our lives. Some of it will be just handed out by virtue of indifference. Some of it will be absolute opposition. But we're called to be good in personal living in spite of that opposition. When is this counsel timely to recall? Well, I've suggested a few ways in my notes here. Let me pass them on to you. When we're invited through intimidation, whether it's threat or peer pressure, to do something wrong on the job. The invitation is there, sometimes even formally told us. We've got to lie, cheat, and steal in order to make it in this business. If you don't, there may be loss of advancement. There may be loss of recognition. There may be loss of your job itself. When is it time to be good? When we face that kind of opposition. How about at school when we face the prospect of being left out socially because we're not going along with the crowd? Let me tell you a little story. We have three children. They're all grown and married now. We've got eight grandchildren. But our middle daughter has a very kind, sweet personality. When she was in the eighth grade, she had friends. When she got into high school, she lost them all. And her four years of high school was a lonely journey for her because she would not go the direction her friends were going. They were opposed to her goody-two-shoes behavior. They were out doing things that teenagers are known to do at times. She wouldn't go along with it. She was still their friend. She still prayed for them. She still invited them to youth group activities, etc. But they treated her with great disdain. I was so proud of her because she dug her heels in and she stood for Christ during those four years. But it was a lonely, lonely time. We're called to be good in personal living in spite of that kind of opposition. If you're on the campus, maybe you can identify with this. We're called to be good when we're ostracized or bad-mouthed in other social relationships because we're a Christian. Some of you here have felt that sting. We do right in spite of it. We know we're dealing properly with opposition when we do right in spite of it. When I was pastoring in Wisconsin, I was in a, about the only place to meet, a family chef restaurant, corner of Highway 83 and I-94. And uh, I was meeting with somebody, I don't even remember who it was now, but they introduced me to another guy that was in there. He happened to be the pastor of another church in the community, a very, very liberal church. And I could tell by the way the guy responded to me that uh, he wanted to pick a fight. Seriously. He said to me, oh, you're part of the free church. And he said it was sort of a snarl in his voice, like, come on, let's, let's get it on here. And I wasn't about to get it on, especially in front of those other people. But any, in any case, why would I want to get it on with this guy? So I just said to him, well, we're really not free. We're just very reasonable. <laughs> Laughed it off and went on. But we'll face those kind of things, those subtle and not-so-subtle invitations to mix it up with other people, to disagree and to, to go, go to the mat together. The good that God wants in personal living, He wants it in spite of the opposition that we face. We know we're dealing properly with opposition when 
We sanctify Christ in our hearts, or we set apart Christ. Look at verse 15, the first part of it. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Well, that says it all, doesn't it? Set apart Christ as Lord. The word is sanctify. It's not an everyday household word. In this context, it suggests acknowledge God as holy by the way you live. Revere him in in your hearts to the point that you can live above the fear of man. The idea is make God number one and then live as though he is. An interesting question arises, which the text answers. How can we know when Christ is first place in our lives? Well, he's at first place in our lives when when we've reasoned out our faith and we're desirous of defending it. Look at the rest of verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Christianity is not to be our faith merely because of our heritage. My mom and dad were Christians, so I guess I'm going to be a Christian too. It's not to be our faith merely out of convenience. Well, it was available, so I chose it. It's not to be our faith as a result of our culture. I grew up in a Christian community. I guess I'll be Christian. No, it's to be our faith because of conviction. We've thought through the reality and the implications of the truth about Christ, his sinlessness, his mission, his work on the cross, the resurrection. We've become convinced and we are now compelled by those facts to become followers. It's kind of like Bob talked about this morning, his own experience. The lights went on and he realized he had to respond to Christ. Because of our conviction, we desire to defend the faith. The word for defense here in verse 15, uh, which I think is translated, let's see, give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason, translated, defend the faith, comes from the word apologia, from which we get the word apologetics. There are three reasons for studying apologetics to clarify issues for ourselves about the Christian faith, to to be able to explain to an honest, sincere skeptic what the Christian faith is all about, and to be able to defend the faith against those who would attack it and destroy it. When Christ is number one, we are jealous and zealous to promote him, to give an account for the hope we have. Now, the text suggests we do it with the right attitude. You notice what it says, with gentleness and reverence. I knew a guy, he's quite an old man now, but he was quite energetic about sharing his faith. And one time he was sharing his faith with a guy in St. Paul, and the guy disagreed with him, and the guy, got, the guy who was sharing his faith got so worked up about it, and he was so annoyed by the fact that the guy disagreed with him, that he decked him. Not quite what... Jesus had in mind. We're to do it with gentleness and reverence. Alan Stibbs in his commentary in 1 Peter says, we're to do it without arrogance or self-assertion with respect to the people with whom we share, and we're to do it with proper awe and reverence before God. Good sharing includes more than just merely good content. It includes a good attitude as well. Let me tell you something. I've said this before. In fact, I just said it last week in our class on evangelism, but let me repeat it because it bears repeating. The gospel is offensive. 
to some more than to others. But the gospel is an offense. So our tact in life ought to be in our sharing our faith with other people. If there's an offense, let it be the, the offense of the gospel and not personal offensiveness. I think that's what the idea is here. With gentleness and reverence, share your faith. The gospel makes people glad, sad, or mad. Let's make sure that we, in and of ourselves, by, fir- by virtue of our own demeanor, we're not the ones making them mad or sad. But let's give defense. Christ is in first place when we act like that. That's the good that God likes. In spite of the opposition. How can we know Christ is first place in our lives when we prefer suffering to compromise? Look at verse 17. It is better if the will of God, if it, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Boy, those are such profound words. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. The idea is that we may suffer for righteous living, for doing what is right. And that is to be preferred over suffering for doing what is wrong or changing our behavior so as to avoid suffering altogether and compromising our convictions. I remember when I was in high school, I was a brand new Christian. I hardly had two verses of Scripture to rub together. I didn't know anything. I just knew that Jesus had absolutely changed my life. And I was in a shop class. Now, the guy who taught this shop class, he was everything I admired. He played football at Ohio University. He was a twin linebacker in the old 54 Oklahoma defense. And the other twin linebacker, a guy named Vince Costello, went on to play had a, st- a stellar career with the Cleveland Browns as a linebacker. John Turk, my teacher, was better than this guy at linebacker. But he chose professional baseball instead. I think he worked for the worked with the Pittsburgh Pirates organization for a while. But I don't know what this guy was doing, but his class, he always had this kind of a philosophical air in shop class. And one day he had us fill out a form. He must have been working on a graduate degree and he had to use us as his guinea pigs. I guess that, that's the only thing I can figure out. But on the form had a whole bunch of questions, kind of philosophical questions. One of the questions was, who is the greatest influence in your life? Well, right away I was called up. I was on deck. I had to give an answer. And I wanted to say Jesus Christ, but I was afraid to. Because I also wanted to fit in, and I wanted this guy to like me. But I had a wrestling match. Maybe five, ten minutes I wrestled over that. And finally I thought, no, I am who I am. Jesus is who he is. He's changed my life. So I put down Jesus Christ. Handed him my paper. Walked out. Let come what may. Wasn't too many days later. He said, hey, Brown. Yeah, coach. Read your paper. Yeah, coach. Liked your answers. Thank God he did. But whether he did or didn't, I learned a lesson that day. Prefer even suffering to compromise. That's the point. How can we know where Christ is first place in our lives? When we prefer suffering because of what Christ has done for us. Now I want to read these 
verses of Scripture to you. This is kind of, to me, this is sort of an excursion. These verses of Scripture have created more conversation than a lot of other passages. But they tell us one thing, and I'll tell you what that is when we're done. Verse 18. Well, let's start with verse 17. It is better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Stop right there. What in the world is this all about? Uh, I think to summarize it, and we don't have a lot of time to get into it, to summarize it, I think what's illustrated here is the supremacy of Christ. Because Christ is supreme, we'll devote our lives to him in service, even if it means to suffer. And also what we see here is the sufficiency of Christ. He went to preach to those who were in prison, those who were around during Noah's day. What did he say to them? You got a second chance? No. He says you were wrong, now you're being judged. You don't mess with God. We don't know exactly when he went. Some think that he went in his pre-incarnate state. Some think he went uh, between the resurrection and the ascension. Some think, think that he went between, I'm sorry, between the death and crucifixion, death and resurrection. Some think he went between the resurrection and the ascension. We don't know. But the fact of the matter is what we see here is the supremacy of Christ. And then let's read on. He says, there were eight in all saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Be careful here, because if you stop right there, you get the idea that baptism saves. Baptism doesn't save. It's a symbol of what saves. Because he goes on to say, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. We're to be in submissiveness. We saw that last week. We're to live the God, do the good that God likes. We see that today. And one day, everyone, everywhere, is going to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. All authorities and powers are in submission to him. When these things are true... When his example is our incentive and his example draws us into a life of devotion, it's reasonable to assume, assume that Christ is in first place. He is sanctified in our hearts. He's set apart in our hearts. And when that's true, we'll always be able to handle opposition rightly. We'll always be good in our personal living. This is that to which God has called us. Listen, God has not called a single person in this room to be a Christian in name only. Let me say that again. God has not called a single person in this room to be nominal in their faith. That's a trick of the devil. There's no such thing as nominal Christianity. There's no such thing as glandular Christianity. That's the gospel according to how I happen to feel at the moment. There's only obedient Christianity. This is that to which God has called us. 
I'm not chastising anyone this morning. I'm just laying out the scripture. This is what it says. Now the question is, where are we? And at different times in our lives, we're at different places because we're frail. We're weak. We're human. Where are we today? Is there a need in your life? My life? Have a little talk with the Lord this morning. Say, Lord, I want to reconsecrate myself to you. If there is, we need to take advantage of it. I've done that this morning. I'm going to give you the opportunity to do it too. But how about those who, like those who were in Bob's shoes at one time or another? Maybe you haven't yielded your life to Christ yet. Maybe you've just seen it for the first time that he really wants you. He really cares about you. Maybe you'd like to give yourself to him this morning. We want to give you an opportunity to do that. In fact, let's pray right now, shall we? Our Father, we thank you that these guys like Peter, who ultimately ended up, ended up giving their lives for the gospel, put their life on paper as well, their convictions on paper, their counsel to us on paper. Peter had no presentiment that he would be, his, his words would be read some 2,000 years later in a little congregation in Cocado, Minnesota. He was writing to those who were scattered abroad in that day, those whom he considered as sojourners. And we're in the same position. So first of all, we pray, Lord, for those of us who do know Christ. We come to you this morning and we tell you, Lord, all over again that we really want to serve you. We want to be good in light of the alternatives that are there. We want to be good in, in light of the opposition that is there. But we know we can't be good in and, of, in and of ourselves. We're too weak. So we pray for help. We pray that you'd help us to be good in the way we live. We pray that you'd empower us by the Holy Spirit and you'd give us that assurance that when we confess our sins, they're indeed forgiven by you. And help us to travel on in the power of your strength in the power of your might. And then, Lord, we pray for any here who have yet to yield their, their lives to you. We see in this last passage that you're in charge of everything. You've gone into heaven. You're at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to you. We pray for anyone here who's yet to give their lives to you that they would do it this morning, right now. They would simply say, I want to follow you. Help us to be honest with you, Lord, in terms of whether we do or do not want to follow. And help us to be forthright with you if we do indeed want to follow. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've decided today that you want to follow Christ, we'd like to help you. And we can help you. 
if you'd simply circle your name to let us know that you want to follow Christ. Now, if you already know Christ, don't circle your name. It confuses the issue. But if you've yet to give your life to Christ, but you want to follow him and you've decided to do this morning that that's what you'd like, circle your name. We'll call you, we'll get in touch with you, we'll sit down, we'll share some good news with you. We're going to wait upon you for the Lord's tithe and his offering right now. He's a good God. He gives us everything, and we come now to give a portion of it back so that his work can go on. That's what this is for. We give as unto the Lord so the Lord can use the funds to further his work. May God bless you as you give.